Sonic Statesman.com. Okay, welcome everybody. It's uh, Talk, Sonic Talk uh, number 40. I can't believe it. We finally made it to 40. I mean, I, th- I, I, I hope I speak um, in turn when I say I think we're all of a certain age where 40 has, is a milestone we've already passed in our personal lives. But in, in my podcasting and broadcasting life, this is a first for me. So uh, I feel I should, um, I don't know, smoke a cigar or something. <laughs> to help me celebrate uh, our, uh, our, our, our prestigious number uh, is um, this week we've got Dave Spears from G4 Software. Hello. How you doing, Dave? I'm okay, I think. Glad to hear it. <laughs> and uh, PJ Tracy from uh, Minneapolis, a composer um, who's based over there, um, works mainly with PCs and uh, is a busy guy by all accounts. How are you doing, PJ? Uh, very well, thanks. Good, glad to hear it. And of course, Mark Tinley, uh, who's sporting a, a new Skype ID photo and is looking very dashing in it. Have you had your hair cut yes. or is it just tied back? No, it's just tied back. When my son took that photograph at the sprinting, motorcycle sprinting. <laughs> In fact, uh, we went to that on Sunday, and I just handed him a camera because I had more than one camera, and I took lots of what I thought were nice photos, and he wandered around with this uh, Olympus camera-taking photographs, and all his photographs are better than mine. Ah, well. So from all family events now, I'm just going to hand him a camera and go, you know what, you do the photos and get on with it. He's nine, and he's obviously got a good got eye. eye for it, yeah. Well, um... What can I say? Uh, it's post-Messa. I didn't go in person, although I feel like I was there with uh, the video reports we got. But um, it was, uh, by all accounts, I don't know if you heard uh, Andy, um, I spoke to him last week and in, in insert into last week's podcast. He was um, he was there on the ground and said it was quite busy and kind of pretty, um, a bit more sort of energised than it has been in previous years. After all the sort of business stuff um, the, that there is, um, Andy put up a, uh, a brilliant piece yesterday, which was uh, set in the kids' hall. There is a kids' hall there where there's, there's, there's this guy who builds all these incredible musical instruments and has kids running around and experimenting with sound, like sort of huge T-chest bass kind of things, and people can twang. You know, you have to watch it. It's great, and I, I oh, really? definitely want to go That there. actually sounds really interesting. You've changed my mind. I want to go now. Well, that part looks great. He and he, This yeah. guy, he has... Um, what is it? Kids for Music, I think it's called. And he has... Over seven days, he has three sessions of 380 children at a time per day. Oh, my yeah. God. So that I, what did <laughs> he say it was? It was, three. It, it was something like, <laughs> I, so I don't know what that makes. I, I, I think it was kind of like six or 7,000 children in a week. Yeah, 6,000 kids, he said. Yeah. On the, on the, wow. Yeah. And, uh, the amazing were, thing is the children were really well behaved. I mean, they, they just looked like they were having a fantastic time playing all those musicals. So this guy just builds all these incredible instruments and kind of sound sculptures for the kids to run around and and play with, and it just looks... Most of it looked like stuff I kind of want to play with as well, so absolutely brilliant. So I I thoroughly recommend you watch that video. I think it's one of the last videos we put up, and it's it's a real sort of antidote to um, the usual corporate cell that, you know, obviously you do get at these things. And um, it was uh, Andreas from the Superbooth who turned us on to that and took Andy down the winding corridors and, and into this little, well, it was a huge hall, but it was very discreet, not signposted at all. Did anyone see anything from the Mesa coverage that um, piqued their interest? I mean, I've got a list of things here, but was uh, before we get into that, was there anything in there that uh, that really got anybody going? I like that Chris Stone string library. The DVZ, yes. yeah. Yes. Mm. Yeah, he's, uh, he's a very interesting guy, actually. We first met him... I think it was uh, Nam last year. Was it Mesa last year? 
I forget which. He's developed this Divisi real-time instruments technology, and it, it requires an enormous amount of uh, CPU power. And um, we thought it was kind of crazy, you know. But actually, when you listen to it, it sounds fantastic, and it's the sort of Rolls-Royce um, product of, of his whole uh, range, audio impressions range. And, you know, he's using these to sort of push the technology. But I think that's going to be coming filtering down to some lower-end technology. But it's incredible. Um, and uh, we went to see him a couple more times, and he's sort of developed more instruments. And this one is the string library that he's showing. And he's actually a fantastically accomplished musician, so his, his demos are great. And he's a very interesting chap. By the age of uh, 12... He was the youngest member of ASCAP, having written the score for three motion pictures by then. Can you believe that? So wow. he's a bit of a prodigy. Wow. Yeah, uh, he studied with um, somebody called Nadia Boulanger in Paris and completed his education in, in Vienna. So, you know, he's a fairly kind of prodigious musical talent, and he's, he's reported to have a million-dollar microphone collection as well. And he's just a real enthusiast for recording techniques and sound, and he's developed this whole thing. And it's uh, the Divisi... Oh, DVZ, which is based on Divisi, which is division. So his whole thing is, you know, you get a string orchestra, and if it's a normal sample, usually you've got 60 people playing, a, playing one note. You play another note, then you've got kind of 120 people playing two notes, if you see what I mean. But they're the same, the same bunch of people. What he does is his technology divides it down. So if you've got a 60-piece orchestra or string section, you play two notes, there's 30 per, per note, and so on and so forth. So it's much more realistic and kind of clearer, and the clarity is is uh, quite amazing, which is why they sound so good. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that does make sense that somebody had to do that sooner or later, didn't they? So yeah, that's his big thing. And um, the demo we shot—I can't remember—it's kind of—it's quite a long one. I think it's fifteen, sixteen minutes or something like that. But it g gives you an idea of what it's capable of. But uh, yeah, you do need a bunch of computers to get the most out of it. A um, bunch of. A bunch of yeah, five, <laughs> five computers yeah. apparently. Uh, how, much how much is it? <laughs> how much is it? Well, I'm not yeah. sure. I expect if you have to ask, then there's you no point in asking. Kind of I, I've seen quotes on the internet at 7,500 for the for the DivsBZ, and then and then an additional uh, 6,000 for the string library. For so it's it's up around $12,000 American for wow. the so about the cost of a string session, then really. Yeah. Yeah, well, I suppose... Yeah, probably. But Absolutely. then you've got all... I mean, because some of the, the articulations and the real-time manipulation of those sounds, I mean, it's pretty um, pretty outstanding. And also, from what... I don't know, in the demo, he he shows, look, he says, look, I've got a 30-piece orchestra here. Now I'm just going to take it down to a quartet, you know, so you can divide and, and then change the kind of rooms. And the whole technology appears to be, you know, these multiple computers, they're all networked together, so you only need one audio card. It just requires the processing to kind of load the samples into RAM, presumably, and then, you know, do what they do. Yeah, they're networked via Ethernet. Yeah. And uh, w one of the interesting uh, components of this technology is this thing he calls SPACE. Uh, I forget what that acronym stands for, but it's it looks like some sort of hyper-convolution system where you can take sounds that don't exist inside the Divisi library, they come from other libraries, disparate libraries, and combine them inside of the Divisi program and make them sound like they existed in the same space, but he's, he claims it goes beyond uh, conventional convolution technology and actually mimics mic bleed and uh, spot mic placement. And so you can place any um, sound from your existing sound library or synthesizer set into the Divisi environment and make it blend with the orchestra. Wow, that's or pretty complex. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't get that. Yeah. That's that's amazing. I mean, all I know is he's a real mic nut. I mean, we met him at Mesa last year, 
and spent a very drunken sort of early hours of the morning with him smoking a big fat cigar like a kind of real kind of high high roller telling us all about you know <laughs> how he liked to mic drum kits using kind of all these enormous sets of microphones and he was demonstrating it and jump he was really enthusiastic and it's just kind of because he's you know he's no spring chicken but he's still got the fire for it you know and it's it really comes across when you see his demos Another fantastic aspect of this is, according to the Audio Impressions website, they've already recorded over 600 instruments and instrument groups, and they're just going to start doling out the sample libraries, the string uh, library being the first of many to come. And drum kits are included in that, uh, in that lineup, as well as many world instruments, um, other stringed instruments, guitars, keyboards, and uh, a whole Baroque set, which should be interesting, harpsichord and... Um, clavichord and some other uh, Baroque instruments. The only thing I noticed he was missing was a quote from Hans Zimmer, which <laughs> <laughs> something that he's missing out there. He probably has to give it to him free, doesn't he, to get the quote? Uh, I'm not sure how he that says, works. He says very cynically. I don't know. Dave, would you know how that works? Uh, yes. You would know, but you perhaps not like to discuss it. Okay. Let's move swiftly on before his lawyers give me a ring and uh, and, and suggest that I'm perhaps slandering um, or something, allegedly. I guess the really big news has got to be this new synth, the Solaris, from uh, John Bowen. And we, unfortunately, I don't know how this happened, but uh, we had a slight communication problem because we were intending to go and see him on the Friday and um, it just the messages didn't get through and everybody got tied up, so we missed our chance to actually kind of see him and film it but uh, i did interview him yesterday um over the wires i'm going to put that in a podcast next week because it's like an hour and a half interview and it's quite interesting it covers his sort of early days with the uh, sequential and right the way up to you know what he's doing now the new solaris um it's like a hardware manifestation of uh, a plugin that he's been doing on the pulsar and scope platform for four years uh anybody come across it no no, I, I, I did have Creamware Pulsar in a PC about seven years ago, but haven't got that in a, in a computer anymore. Gone back to the Mac, I'm afraid. By all accounts, the Solaris is, you know, is is um, held up as kind of a really high. It's got high values in terms of, you know, it sounds absolutely great, and that's one thing that his his two main kind of core things are: it's got to sound great, and it's got to be easy to operate. And these things he appears to have achieved within the plugin version, and people have been sort of going crazy for it for the last four years. And it sounds really good at 96K, apparently, which is what the Solaris hardware will run at. But uh, the, wow. the architecture is going to be uh, something along the lines, although it's not fixed because, you know, you can, because it's DSP-based, it's going to be four oscillators, four mixers, four filters, five LFOs, six envelopes, plus another two eight-stage looping envelopes. So that's going to be quite a com plus internal effects. And he, he said to me that they could uh, have up to 74 built-in effects. <laughs> Which should do you. Wow. Okay, but what's it going to sound like? Well, I, presumably it's going to sound like the plugin, and the plugin sounded pretty pretty good from what I understand. I mean, I'm, I don't have any direct experience of it. I think um, perhaps uh, it's a shame John's not with us this week because I think he he's um, he's got some pulsar uh, some scope platform experience. The synth community's been going mental for it. I mean, it's all over the forums, and people have been going, "Hey, there's a photo of it," and it comes in two two flavors apparently, two colors. But it's not going to be ready until probably October time, they think. So I shouldn't think we'll see it actually, you know, in force until NAM next year and winter NAM next year. But uh, people are already getting excited about it. It looks amazing. It has uh, like forty knobs on it and and six displays. 
six yeah. six forty character LCDs displays. Yeah, yeah. He, he's kind of pretty uncompromising by the sound of things. But one thing I didn't realize about John Bowen, I mean, he's been um, instrumental in kind of create the creation of some real classic instruments. I mean, his work on the Prophet Five, the Wave Station, the, the original Korg Oasis. Um, you know, a number of inst- number of sequential instruments. So, I mean, he's kind of done some pretty good, um, pretty good design jobs. And he's kind of, as far as I can understand it, he's kind of more of the concept guy. And then he uh, helps to make sure the quality is reached. You know, with the, with the creation of presets and the voice architecture and stuff. So he's not an engineer. He's more of a kind of um, a brilliant mind and a gentleman as well. Yeah, he seemed like a really nice guy. The Solaris synth, yeah, if you want to hear more, um, next week when we're having a week off, I'm going to be putting out this uh, John Bowen uh, interview pretty much in full, which is uh, over an hour, so uh, that should keep the, the real synth nuts uh, interested, I hope, and um, make up for the fact that we never got to see him at Mesa. Did anyone see the, the Dexter, the Jazz Mutant Dexter thing? Yeah. I saw the demo, yeah. Yeah. Wow. That looks That's kind amazing. of like a... A real interesting new development, doesn't it? Why does it look like an interesting new development? Well, because it's a new firmware. Um, because the thing about the the Lima up to now is, you know, you're dealing with kind of fairly basic templates and stuff that you kind of have to make yourself or is created by users. Where what it looks like with the Dexter, it's a firmware upgrade that is specifically designed to work with a uh, a door, you know, a, an audio sequencer. It looks like they've got somebody else in to design a, a very specific set of interface tools and make it look really integrated. And the, the demo that I saw was just, you know, it it looked like they really kind of put an awful lot of thought into just for that purpose. So it's it's still using the same hardware. If, if, that's, uh, if that's the same hardware as the Lemur, then is it possible to get a firmware upgrade for the Lemur to make it into a Dexter? I believe so. Uh, I've heard that you can get dual boot, so you can have it boot as a Lemur or boot as a Dexter. Oh wow! Now that now that would be really great. I mean, have you did you see the video, Mark? Yeah. Well, so what? You know, um, sooner or later, Apple are going to bring out a polyphonic touch screen, and then I'll be able to do it all within the sequencer, and I won't need a separate box. Right? I mean, I'd, I'd, I think I, maybe I'm being over cynical on this, but it just I think I would be annoyed with it relatively quickly, and I would probably just carry on doing things the way that I do them now until. Yes, I, I can. I can see what you're saying, Mark. I mean, one of the things that was so impressive about the demo, because um, you were sort of sceptical that perhaps you know the concept of it is more exciting than the actuality. One of the thing that was impressive about the demo, I thought, was like fader grouping and soloing. So you know, if you solo a bunch of faders or mute a bunch of faders or whatever, you can actually bring them together on the same screen, which is something you know. So you can do things that are quite clever with groupings. Oh, okay. In the way that you could polyphonically manipulate EQ curves, I really like that because that could lead to some yeah. very interesting filtering. Mm. And the other thing was the surround panning tools were just out of this world. And I know, you yeah. know, not many of us perhaps work in five one, but I think if perhaps five one is your environment, did you see there was the circle with um, eight? You can have up to eight sources in in a group that you can work on, and you basically move them around within the three hundred sixty degree image. Then what you could do is actually rotate the whole 360 degrees. So That was brilliant. That was just kind of like, wow. Yeah. I mean, I'd imagine if for post, that would be kind of, yeah. you know, that would be pretty incredible. I think the problem for me is that I started off in programming. So I started off programming an AKIS 900 and triggering it from a TR-909. And I'm just used to everything being in small interfaces and having numbers assigned to it, as I said a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> So, you know, I've had all these different controlling things and, you know, the Pro Tools, Pro Control and the B 
big one and I find myself in front of the computer with the mouse moving everything around on the screen and and if I can't see the whole song all at once, like the entire mixer page for the whole song, I don't really like it. Right. So I, I find that if I have a pro control in the room, that it just sits to my left and occasionally the faders move on it and I go, oh, isn't it cool that the faders move up and down when I move the mouse? And that's about as good as it gets for me. I, I never find myself using that. I always find myself working on things from a programmer's perspective and not from an engineer's perspective. So I'm just scared that I wouldn't use it. I'd buy one and it would sit next to me and I'd go, oh, yeah, it's cool, flashing well, lights and everything. But. Well, maybe it's not, you know, it's not for you then in that case. But I, I think what makes the um, the whole concept of that, I mean, I've been reviewing it and I found, you know, I, I'm, I admit, you know, I started off, I was really excited by it, but then I kind of got to a bit of a dead end because... It didn't have all the, you know, it couldn't do everything that I needed. Where, you know, I'd have to program it to do that. Whereas the thing is with the Dexter, it's a sort of single purpose. So you know what you're getting. I mean, but at the same time, you can boot it as a lemur and it'll do all sorts of other weird stuff that you may want to do. I think if it was as big as an SSL desk, then it might be interesting and useful. But I think at the moment it's too small. I want, I want, you know, I want the whole, I want the whole overview, and I don't think it really gives me that. In the well, way just get I more of to. them. I mean, they're all on Ethernet, so you just get even. You just get a bunch of them. Wow. You could have like oh, I four. Have to win the lottery then, Dave. What do you think, Dave? I thought it looked great. I mean, the demo did look really excellent. Um, and I really like things that make me think about things in a different, you know, from a different perspective, which I think this could. Um, my only real reservation, and the, and the only reason I'm reserving judgment, is latency. That's the only thing. If the latency is indiscernible, then they might have a sale. If it is, then they probably wouldn't from me. I'm just so used to a desk, you know. I love, I, I use the Mackie here all the time, and I'm just so used to it. But actually, when I took it out of the equation to do the A-B test with these um, converters, I actually found myself instinctively reaching towards it constantly. So it's going to take something quite special, I think, to replace that. But this did look pretty damn smart, I thought. Yeah, I mean, I think the fact that it's in two dimensions, as in flat, um, does does kind of present a certain amount of problems. Um, and the latency, I mean, I've got a Lima here, which is under, I'm waiting for the Dexter firmware upgrade because I can't wait to get my hands and try it. Um the latency is probably, you know, if you're if you're programming drums, it's going to be an issue. You know, if you're going to use it to trigger notes, then yeah, it might be a bit. I mean, although I did, I was I had the pattern, the sequence on fairly heavy quantize, you can adjust. So I mean, there is a certain amount of latency, but it's not a great great amount of latency. Okay. You know, it's nothing like the sort of latency you might find if you were moving all these things, uh, perhaps over MIDI. You know, in terms of moving all yeah. of the controllers at the same time. Wow. Yeah. 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 And did you notice that on the Dexter, there, it, that it actually you get feed, visual feedback to the level meters on the side of the channels as well? Yeah, that was very, 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 very neat. And the one thing, the other thing that I thought was very cool is you could flip to a higher resolution mode. So you would, when you moved an entire fader, it just gave you, you know, the, the, the kind of 5 dB either side of where you were. So you got much finer resolutions than you would do with, um, you know, just a, a maybe a, a, a lower resolution MIDI fader. But yeah, I think I, I think you're right about the hardware thing because I've also got a PreSonus um, fader port here, which uh, I got at the same time, and I just thought, poo poo, you know, it's not going to be. A, but the fact that it actually is a physical fader and is moving somehow makes it more instinctive to reach for. When it's on a flat screen, it's just. It, it, I think you have to make a bit of a. You have to re-educate yourself slightly. But I, all the people that I've spoken to, you know, they 
they evangelise wildly about the touchscreen kind of thing. So, I mean, I'm sure I'm sure the re-education thing would happen in time, but it has to be, as Dave said, it has to be better than you've got anything that you've got already for you to go, for you to want to bother to, you know, make that switch. Once you get used to using them, then it becomes and it becomes a, a second nature. Then I think that's cool. But it it has to be something that you're going to want to use more than your desk. Well, uh, uh, yes, but I mean, but also you could think about it from this way is, you know, if you just use a mouse and you don't use a desk, like, you know, you just plug into your sound card and it goes to your, um, you know, into a pair of powered speakers, then what this yeah. is going to do is provide you with much more control than your mouse. I think the, I think the interesting thing as well is that it's going to take people um, sub 40 years old to come up with some really cool way of using this <laughs> um, that's what i'm excited to see some kind of, yes. some kids taking it and using it kind of in a radical way well, I, th I think using the lemur to control things like max msp and and to you know to build your own instruments with the lemur is a really exciting prospect i, I plan on picking one of those up this year yeah i can recommend it pj and um, you know try it out yeah. If if you're skeptical, I thoroughly recommend anybody go and have a look at the the Dexter demo. And also, there's also a a, a 1.6 um, upgrade for Lima, which is also another demo. So, so I think there's about 15 20 minutes of of um, Lima action from Mesa. So I, I thoroughly recommend you go and have a look at it. Or, or also, um, indeed, my very own first two parts of the Lima review. Did you see the Akai MPK 49, the MPC kind of pads on the on a MIDI keyboard? Which yeah, I like that. nobody, yeah. you know, I mean, everybody's yeah. kind of, they've released various incarnations of MPC pads and what have you, but this one seems to be a bit different because it's actually used, it's got internal clocking and note generation, so you've got arpeggiators and that thing that, that really was cool on the MPC, which kind of led to all that drum and bass, which was the, the velocity and the fader, wasn't it? So you kind of, you hold your finger on a pad and turn the velocity up and you get a re-trigger at whatever the clock division was, so you could use it for sort of, you know, that kind of thing, pressure rolls, press rolls, I suppose. And uh, it's got that. Oh, is it? I didn't know that. Mm. So I bought the Korg, I bought the Korg Micro something or another, which has uh, got pads on it, but they don't work particularly well, and it doesn't do what it says it does on the box, unfortunately. So I'm quite interested in this. Oh, I forget the, the numbers, but uh, you can shift, so you get multiple layers of uh, of pads and knobs and and uh, rotary controllers and, and faders. So that looks pretty good. I thought it was neat, fantastic. actually. O originally, I was like, oh, not another controller. Yeah, exactly. And so it's yeah. the last thing on the list that I looked at. But actually, I, li I like it a lot. Well, it's just another example of how great a video demo of something can be. Because if you read that in a in a news item, you might just think, mm, you know, whatever. Yeah. What's but the cost on it? Does anybody know how much they are? I shouldn't imagine. I mean, Newmark own Akai now, so I would have thought it's going to be pretty low. But the 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 Akai stuff is still keeping it sort of fairly premium price. It's just not as as expensive do you know in a way the, the price is almost irrelevant as long as the keyboard plays well that's one thing i like about that core control 49 i think it is we've got you know the keyboard action is very very good i mean and there's so many controller keyboards out there that are spongy yeah. and crappy and you know they are cheap and you have to accept a lot of that but what we want is a kind of high quality keyboard action yeah well it says this is yeah. semi-weighted but the pads on the, the pads on the control 49 are awful I mean, there's just there's no variation in it, is there? You have to hit them like no, really that's true, yeah. hard to get anything to happen. Well, that's got to yeah. be a, that's got to be a software upgrade, isn't it? I mean, it just needs to be 
to tweak the um, the curves. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Or, or maybe, maybe it's. it's a, I mean, because uh, there might only be sixteen levels. You know, who knows? I have an M Audio Pro Keys eighty eight, and I find myself never using it because I don't like the action. I Is that the, the weighted one? The, yeah, the weighted one. Yeah, I use the knobs and the faders for controlling. Uh, different parameters and, and soft synths and on my DAW, but I, I never use the keys. I, I go back to using my Roland VK7 actually, which I, I love the I love the the action on that, the organ action. Do you know that's weird, isn't it? I, yeah, I always go back to the JD800. They're, they're those kind of slightly weighted synth keys, aren't they? That just kind of have a a certain. So I always remember the the Kawai K1 had a really nice keyboard as well, sort of slightly bouncy, but you know a little bit of weight to them. About the pro keys is that the keys on them are slightly larger than actual piano keys. Is that and, right? And so, yeah, and so they feel off balance when you play. I mean, I've played the piano for 26 years, and I sat down and played this thing. I, I bought it sight unseen, which I've never done with a keyboard before. I just thought, I need all those knobs and faders, which I use, so I guess it wasn't a, it wasn't a worthless purchase. But the action on the thing is so deplorable, and most of it is because it's not even the hammers. It's the it's the or the release mechanism. It's the fact that the keys are too large. The Axiom twenty fives are quite good. The Axiom's quite nice. They've got a nice keyboard action. Okay, well, um, Akai's MPK is um, available later this year. I think in the summer, perhaps. So um, keep your eyes out for that. I think it, you know might might be a bit of a hit with people who like that kind of thing. My daughter wants to talk to you. She plays her guitar through a Yamaha amp. Hello, Claudia. Hello. How are you doing? I'm fine. So uh, uh, Mark tells me that you're. Um, a fan of Yamaha amplifiers, and you play through those. Is that right? Yes. Excellent. And what do you use, Claudia? I I have a, a Fender. And what sort of stuff do you play? Um, well, Dad teaches me, and I've been learning at the moment. So you rocking out? Yeah. Seems like the perfect moment for a Yamaha ad. The new MM6 music production synthesizer from Yamaha. Codename Mimo. The 61 note portable synthesizer with incredible sonic power based on motive tone generation, real time audio control, USB connectivity, and computer integration. Bundled with Cubase LE audio and MIDI sequencing software. Create, produce, perform with the affordable and versatile MM6 music production synthesizer from www.mm6music.co.uk. The other thing that was announced was the Roland HD1, which is a kind of budget V-drums kit. Now, uh, Dave, have you got any V-drum stuff? Yeah, I've got the TD10 with the expansion pack. Love it. I think it's brilliant. In fact, I haven't got I haven't got enough room to use it at the minute, and I really sorely miss it. Yeah, so the thing about the HD1, uh, uh, what they've done is uh, I think you get a mesh head or mesh type head on the snare, so you get that kind of for the feel, so you get all the sensitivity there. And then you've got rub, just sort of basic rubber pads for the rest of it. But it's all on a very simple frame with, uh, and they've damped the bass drum pedal and the hi hat pedal, so they're quite quiet. I think they've sort of designed it for people to put in their bedrooms or at places where they're not going to annoy the neighbours with their sort of thumping. Do what do you think of the V drum technology generally? I love it. I mean, I have to say, I mean, I grew up on a Simmons SDS five, graduated to the SDS seven. Went through things like the TD5, the drum cat, and everything. And it was only when we got the TD10 that drummers... I used to have this other life where I'd record a million drummers and record all the MIDI data, and then we'd sell that as um, parts. And uh, every single drummer struggled with the real kit, myself included. And yet when we got the TD10, everybody changed. Everybody changed their attitude. So you could you you would use it for actually recording the kind of... 
squeezing, capturing the essence of a drummer. Uh, yeah, that's what I did for like six or seven years. Blimey. Did people like Bruford and all sorts of people. I think it's quite good for that. Capturing the essence of a drama, but I don't like any of Roland's sounds at all. I think Dave, I was going to ask: Have you have you used the TD10 to trigger any of the larger libraries, like uh, the DF, DFH, DFH stuff or the BFD? Or uh... Uh, f- yeah, funnily enough, uh, I got a friend of mine who's got the TD8. I think I got him a copy of BFD. Um, and basically, he just wants to write songs, but he wanted you know better drum sounds than were provided on the Roland. And uh, I think he's got on with it, you know, mega. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I think I've got that missing from my life, BFT. I need to get that. It's a shame, isn't it? Because, I mean, that you know, we did uh, a video review of the TD20, which was this is the flagship. I think they've incremented it slightly from them, but it's the flagship. And it was, while it was great and it had all this incredible modelling technology, it was just, it didn't seem to have the life that um, BFD had. Uh, and it was a bit disappointing in that respect. So, I mean... Uh, it seems like they've really got the, the triggering and the playing surfaces really beautifully kind of nailed. Um, and that was, you know, that was the only thing that let it down. So do you, do you think the sounds are kind of just not quite there? Or I mean, what is it that prevents them from being, you know, the absolute pinnacle? Most drummers that I speak to um, want it to be able to sample. They basically want a D-drum brain, yeah. as it were, yeah. but with the Roland heads. And I think that's the key mission at the minute. I thought you could put samples in there on, um, you know, little SDS cards or whatever. It might do on the 20, certainly not on the I 10. I don't think you can on the 20, but you can do on, um, certainly on some, on some of their pads, you can plug, um, you know, those drum heads into into it. So you get that all of that, um, I don't know what they call oh, it. Oh, is that know. what it is? Yeah, oh, okay. so you can trigger them using that technology, uh, using their actual V drums, um, and then you can trigger your own samples. So maybe that's a kind of the way to go. In all fairness, BFD does sound like somebody playing a drum kit if you buy the XFL expansion pack, you know, to go along with the original sample pack, because this, the original one is just not deep enough to do everything that a real drummer could do. You need the 22-gigabyte expansion expansion module, or buy one of the other ones, like um, I th- there was one expansion pack that was recorded at Steve Albini's studio in Chicago. It's huge. It's like 55 gigabytes, and then right. the new... Jazz and funk is 70, 70 gigabytes of drum data, and it's just intensely deep. But you're getting to the point there where you're kind of you're almost in Divisi kind of territory where you need a dedicated computer just to run that. Because I mean that's a heck at least of a, a dedicated drive. You need a dedicated drive because I have I have BFD and I have a lot of the expansion packs. I also have Tune Tracks Custom and Vintage with the Custom and Vintage add-on, and that's huge. And that's almost 60 gigabytes of data right there. Um, the CPU hit isn't too bad if you go in and, and you switch out some of the MIDI filtering and whatnot, but the um, the drive real estate is obviously huge. It's enormous. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I have over a terabyte in my computer just to, just to hold sample data, and a lot of that's taken up with drum samples these days. Wow. This is probably the answer then. So when Roland were de- developing this, the cost of memory hadn't come down enough for them to consider doing that. That's probably the Oh, answer. that might be true. That might be true. Yeah. They don't. They're not sample based. They're models. You know, they're actually real time models. Oh, yeah. but Nick, are the drums actually modeled, or is it just is the COSA modeling? I my understanding was that that's the room and the microphones and that type of thing are modeled, but the drums self sample. Well, as far as I understand it, anyway, from what I remember, it was kind of more than a year ago. We did this, maybe two. You can modify the physical attributes of a drum. As well oh, as what's well, that's, surrounding that's it. That's the problem right there. The physical modeling technology <laughs> hasn't come to fruition. 
Yeah, it doesn't compete with high-definition samples. It's like there that is French, a massive French string synthesizer thing that that's you know all heralded and all amazing. It, that just sounds like an FM synth to me. Currently. Oh, the Applied Acoustic String Studio. Yeah, I yeah. agree. Yeah. Well, let's not, not let's there, not yeah, alienate too many uh, potential advertisers <laughs> <laughs> in one program. <laughs> okay, here's here's a, I love Applied Acoustics. Lounge Lizard is amazing, and uh, Tasman is a really great modeling synthesizer. And String Studio has some amazing potential, but it, you know t- the hype that surrounds these things when they first come out, where they're saying it's the next greatest thing. You can replace a cabinet full of guitars and basses with it. You can't. You simply no, can't. Of course you can't. I mean, I did, I did get the most amazing cello sound out of it that sounded very realistic in amongst strings, but on its own it wouldn't work to be like a, a solo cello. But Have you heard... It, um, you can use it to make a, a strings that cut through other strings quite right. nicely. Has anybody heard, heard Gary, Gary Garretton's Gold, Gold Freiler cello, the new library from Garretton? No, I haven't. Oh. Um, I haven't heard that. This is absolutely amazing technology. You guys should look into this. It's it's. I I don't know. Some guy from Italy who works on his programming team created this thing called Sonic Morphing, where you actually are able to move from the lowest dynamic level of of a sound wave to the highest, so from pianissimo to fortissimo, um, seamlessly through the sample without any MIDI stepping whatsoever. So. Th- he, he's created uh, a sample library of a Stradivarius violin and one of a gold thriller cello, and they sound absolutely amazing, out of this world. The, the things you can do with it, you'd swear a, a guy was sitting there with the real instrument in a bow. It's, it's just fantastic. Oh, no, that's good. I mean, Garatan's stuff is absolutely brilliant. Um, and the other thing, actually, while, I'm, while we're on the subject of sample libraries, um, did you see the East-West demo? Now, that no. was... Well, we, we, we shot uh, Epic, I think it's like 25 minutes, with uh, Nick Phoenix, who we always get good good stuff from him. And he was going through the new East-West um, instruments that are using their own, you know, their own playback engine. Play. They're, they're moving away from contact and then into this thing called Play. And yeah, play. he was showing us, um, they had this thing called Gypsy, which uh, there was a solo violin, and that was pretty amazing, I have to say, just, just from what I saw. And also with a guitar, and there's a rock one, you know, and... He showed us um, yeah. some really, really cool stuff that it can do, and that was of a similar nature. Which just their real big thing is legato sensing. So you can, you can, you know, you can really realistically uh, translate, say, uh, you know, a fretted instrument into, you know, whether you're pulling on or hammering on or, or, or re-triggering and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's he does he does some really cool illustrations of why his technology is great for that, and it's uh, it's well worth a watch. You know, I've been watching their website for the last couple of months eagerly, you know, eagerly in anticipation of this because I own several of their libraries. I, I love RAW. I find it, I find that indispensable. And um, the the hype on their site says that this is the best sampled violin ever, and this is in light of Garretton having released the version 2.0 of the Stradivarius library, which is amazing. I mean, you can vary legato uh you can do it you can do every single articulation in real time with controllers with pedals and you can vary the vibrato you know that's brought on by the bow which is just i mean it's fantastic so i can't wait to hear what uh what east west has come out with and um as an aside they released um a sample library based on the on the sounds of the beatles called fab four yeah which uh, looks yeah. Uh, yeah that looks like it's going to be incredible apparently doug rogers got um ken scott they, I was going to say, I hope they use Ken Scott for that. 
They did. And uh, he's they amazing. Researched. He's brilliant. <laughs> I guess they did their research and they they rented over two million dollars worth of equipment. Purchased some of it. I guess it's going to be uh, on permanent collection at Cello Studios, which uh, East West owns now. And uh, they recorded a library that is faithful, apparently, to the sounds of the Beatles. So Ken Ken Scott mixed one of Duran Duran's albums. Who's Ken Scott then? Uh, Ken Scott is he's a sound engineer who's worked with. I mean, his show reel is just unbelievable, unbelievable. He's worked with everyone from the Beatles through Bowie, and I mean, just everybody basically. He mi- he mixed Magical Mystery Tour, didn't he? I mean, I don't know if he invented a lot of the processes that went into making modern music sound how it does today, but he he was involved in all of those things yeah. at Abbey Road in those early days. Uh, I, if you were listening to our guitar discussion, uh, there's also a uh, um, a rock library uh, with all sorts of key switching and triggering, so you can use it for your guitar as well. So uh, <laughs> if you're a fan, <laughs> check it out. I, I believe it's called Ministry of Rock. That's it. Yeah, and it's 18 gigabytes of rock samples. And I remember reading an, uh, a post with Nick Phoenix on the East West Forum where he was talking about how he'd done some um, some scoring work for some uh, trailers about a year ago, and he needed a kind of a post-punk sound. And so he sampled all of these instruments, and he was going to repurpose it for this particular library. But he claims on their website that you could create a hit album with using nothing but these samples yeah well that's a claim that's you know pretty hard to test isn't it <laughs> unless yeah. you actually have a hit <laughs> album <laughs> but I, trio, I d- trio created the hit single with the casio vl that's right yeah. They, so. and yeah that's do you think that's casio true. said yeah. you could recreate a hit record with this and then they were proved right <laughs> i don't know um nick phoenix though i think he's a great guy and he's he's very yeah. um you can tell he's very focused and He's responsible for several of the Hollywood trailers that that get released every year. I mean, I think he's kind of the go-to guy for that work. Oh, I see, right. It's a fair. Who's the guy with the deep voice then? <laughs> yeah. They always have that same oh, guy, don't just they? Just when you thought it was sick. <laughs> One of those guys, interesting, interestingly, is here in the Twin Cities. His name is Tom Bernard. The guy that goes in a world. You know that, yeah. that kind of. Oh wow! Can, can we heroes. can we get him to yeah. do some link? Can we get him to do some free links for Sonic Talk? For Sonic Talk? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe East West should do a uh, a sample library of him. You know, you could have a phonetically constructed database of him. Yeah, that would be cool. But can't you do it with a TC Helicon? I'm sure oh, you yeah. can get that effect Maybe with a so. TC Helicon quite easily. It'd be good to get him to do some trailers for us. Although I, I don't think in any way, shape, or form in a million years we'd ever be able to afford him. <laughs> you have to tell me, tell me what you need, and I'll fake it for you. SonicState.com. Neumann Digital Mics. Anyone I like that y- man's beard. Yeah, he was... <laughs> 30, he cute, didn't he? 33, um, Stefan Puse, um, 33 years with Neumann. That's a pretty t- major achievement. And, you know, he was very zen-like, wasn't he? But, uh... Yeah. Unfortunately, well, I, I was kind of quite interested, to, and I can't find inf- any information anywhere on their website about what the latency is like, because presumably it's going into the capsule, then it's being converted and coming out. So you can't compensate for the latency in your board because by the time you're getting, it's getting to you, it's already latent. If you see what I mean. So I suppose the only way you could really use it is if you were just using digital mics for the whole mic up. Is that right? Well, I know what the answer is then. Go on, then tell me. You get everybody in the band to play lemurs, apart from the guitarist who plays the mini guitar. <laughs> and then everybody's latent, right? Yeah, okay. 
you think it's going to be any worse than like a Line Six guitar? Because that's got latency in it, and that's that's translating a guitar string into digital information. But like, if you play a guitar through a Line Six amp, you do feel a little like something's not quite. <coughs> but that's you know, not. I mean, that's okay. But for things like singers and stuff, isn't it going to be a problem? Well, I, c- I can't imagine Neumann putting out something inadequate. Could you? No, I can't really. I mean, you just no. wouldn't do it, would you? So I mean, it must be kind of infinitesimal. I mean, what comes out the other end of it? Because if you think about it, if it's just digitising a signal and spitting out, um, what's it called, AESEBU digital, then yeah. there shouldn't be that much latency. It's no worse than putting a DAP machine in to record pause and listening to what's coming out the back end of that. So it's probably neg- negligible then. And the TC pedals, um, the TC Nova pedals, which have got kind of, the, they've basically taken the TC2290, which is the sort of was, well the classic studio delay uh, and put it in a, a foot pedal. Anyone familiar with 2290s? Mark, you sounded like you might be. Yes, I am. And uh, there's definitely one sitting at the bottom of the rack that was in Duran Duran's studio. I don't know where it is now, actually. But I used to use that all the time. I love those things. Brilliant. Yeah, I mean, I don't know whether they've got all of the stuff. Because, I mean, I remember the 2290 used to be able to do things... Um, like uh, sense, it would raise the delay level at the end of phrases and all of that kind of stuff. I, I think he talked about that. So, I mean, it's obviously got that sort of complexity built in. I was just going to say, I suppose with technology, that um, everything gets smaller and smaller, doesn't it? So I would guess it's probably the same operating system running on a new set of hardware, probably, I would imagine. I just the, the thought of kicking a 2290 round the, on the floor around a stage, you know, kind of 10 years ago, <laughs> you'd just be going, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't know how expensive those things were, but they weren't at all cheap, were they? <clears throat> but no, these no. are like 300 euros or something, you know, kind of, wow, <laughs> that's amazing. Yeah. Just got an email in from a chap called Patrick, who says he's a big fan of the podcast, so thanks, Patrick. Uh, but he asked me to ask you if there's any truth in the rumour that Timberland is uh, supposed to be working with Duran Duran. Is there any truth in that? It is true. Oh, really? What? The All whole true, yeah. The whole album or just a few bits? Or? <laughs> well, I mean, I work with Nick now. I just, you know, I don't work with Duran Duran as much anymore. You know, I work with Nick on sort of peripheral sort of things, like the Second Life sound effects or helping with keyboard programming or whatever. I don't really get involved in album making. You know, they started making the album with Andy Taylor, and... Um, they recorded a whole load of stuff, and then they've decided to start all over again, and I think it's all going to be Timberland now, from what Nick was saying. Wow. When they've been working in, in a studio with these guys, basically putting a whole new album together. But when I spoke to Nick and said, how's the album going, where have you gotten up to? He said, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, we've got loads of songs, they're all new songs, and they've used a guy called Dom on the guitar, who was the, who's the guy that's been playing with them on all the live tours since Andy left. And um, he said, yeah, Simon's just got a few lyrics to tweak now, and then it's done. Wow. And, but I've heard that phrase before. Ah, well. <laughs> and that usually, means, that usually means Simon's got all the lyrics to write, and it's going to take another year. So <laughs> I don't know when they're going to be done with it, but I do know that, yes, they're definitely working with Timberland. I did, um, Dave, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with Timberland's work. I mean, he's a pretty uh, yeah, a a groundbreaking producer. I mean, he worked with kind of loads of people. I mean, h- him and the Neptunes are kind of reputedly the most highly paid producers in the business. And uh, I was reading a, an interview, not an interview, a review, Kitty Empire in The Observer, I think it was, was reviewing Timberland's latest album, which is kind of a compilation with all the sort of various stars on it. And she was rather cynically suggesting that um, 
all it really was was uh was an advert for his services and he'd kind of decided to do a few more rock tracks to try and get into the rock market um and so it was kind of like a calling card um but the one thing that she said is you know he's reputedly to earn up to half a million bucks per track for production i guess that would be for you know to try and get a radio wow. a side but that's some pretty serious um bucks yeah his remix really? is supposed to be mega aren't they? no there's there's a load of um flack on various forums about him ripping off some Swedish artist, I think, over that Nelly Furtado's track, that Loose. And I think uh, a lot of that came from this this Swedish person's track. Ah. But, uh, well, there's a rumour that is indeed uh, true. So, yes, uh, it is true that um, Timberland is working with Duran Duran. You heard it here. Again, if you haven't heard it already. It was one of those lovely moments in the studio where the part just suddenly clicked and everyone was dancing around. Sonic stage. So you can hear there how the two parts don't conflict. There are a huge number of samples on that record. We double tracked the drums, so there was a second drum track on there. The beginnings of affordable digital recording. Sonic stage. If what you're writing is just explaining some kind of like facet of the software, then it's like the piece of music that's been written is more explaining the machine than it is like your personality. I, I just got a quick question. <clears throat> Not that we have to cover this or go in depth, but is is anybody at all a bit excited about um, Native Instruments Core 2? I can't say as I am. I haven't really... It's one of those things... Core is one of those things that um, I spent an awful lot of time having it explained to me and yes. didn't really kind of... Still didn't really get it. So I haven't had the chance to get excited about it. Should I be getting excited? Well, you know, the thing is, Nick, the, the first Core, I thought, was a bit of a uh, boondoggle. You know, I, I think it was a good idea, but like you said, Native Instruments was never able to really explain what it did. But I watched your video interview with the guy from Native Instruments, and it looks like Core 2 is more like, it's more like Reason, um, in that it's a modular synthesizer environment. They claim to have the engines, like, six or seven of their products built right into Core 2. So you don't need to own the instruments in the first place, like you did with Core 1? No, but I, I don't think you can go as deep as you could if you did own those instruments. You know, in other words, I think that you have some limit, limited editing possibilities, but, uh, but it still looks kind of fantastic. But again, I, I agree with you. I think that their their uh, product rep had a hard time sort of explaining what it was and how it worked. And um, he seemed excited enough about it, but it just couldn't really wrap wrap it in a package that made it understandable. But you know, after I walked away from that video, I thought, you know, that's a really good idea. And the control surface no longer has an audio card built into it, so I'm assuming it'll be a little bit cheaper. So they've taken it from, because before it was sort of a way to organise all your patches or existing patches, and now it will be a sort of standalone plug-in, effectively. Yeah, and I think more than just a way to organise your patches, it's, it's a way to actually uh, have them interact. You know, different patches from different products interact so that you can layer them and, and uh, sort of the way that uh, device operators work inside of, uh, or device chains work inside of Live 6. Right. Where you can take, you know, and you can insert VST plugins and audio units plugins in the chain and create sort of super instruments or super patches from the effects in the, in the instruments that are inherent to NI's collection. Well, that sounds like a good plan because... Um Core one was definitely a little hard to understand um, from 
from a you know even from my point of view, and I kind of supposed to understand these kind of things, but uh, uh, I I would love to check it out when it can becomes available. So we'll keep an eye out on that. Sonicstate.com. And remember, next week there is no roundtable discussion. Um, next week we'll be putting up the interview with John Bowen, creator of the Solaris Synth. So uh, we hope you enjoy that. So it just remains for me to say um, thank you very much for joining us, PJ Tracy from Minneapolis. Goodbye. And Dave Spears from GeForce Software. Thank you. And Mark Tenley. Goodbye. How about that? No, that was, sounded like someone else. Oh, why is this so hard? <laughs> Saying goodbye is often the hardest thing. I know. <laughs> it's because I enjoy it so much. That's why. Sonic. State. What's called?